Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn, and he's not. Yes. In fact, I'm Drew Beecherman. I prefer it that way. <laughs> Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Simple Homebrewing. Still available all your finest retailers. Buy a couple of coffees. They make great insulation. Yeah, really. I mean, we can earn like another eight bucks in royalties next year. Woo! Now, between the two of us, we have over 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. So on today's episode, we're going to head to the pub and cover some of the beer news. Of course, we also have announcements for you. Uh, then we're going to go and talk about a couple of things happening in the brewery and some thoughts on a style that seems to oddly survive and be making a resurgence. And before we get into the lounge where we're going to talk about everybody's favorite topic... Hops, but in this particular case, very specifically, Yakima Chief's new Cryo Pop Hop Blend, and we're going to taste a beer, try some of the uh, try some of the science behind this, and actually try and understand what does it mean when you create your own hop for a very specific reason. Yeah, really, man, it's science. Yeah, and then of course we'll answer a couple of your questions. We'll give you a quick tip. And we'll get you out of here with something to keep you entertained. But before we do any of that, please take a listen to these messages from the people who make the show possible. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association, publishers of Zymergy Magazine, organizers of HomebrewCon, and enjoyers of homebrew. Join your friends in fermentation at homebrewersassociation.org. And by you, our listeners, go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Welcome back, and be sure that you patronize our fine sponsors and help keep this show on the air, on the the electrons, whatever it is. Okay, enough of that. We're going to kick off with some announcements here, and Drew has the first one. Well, first, my very important announcement is to make sure that you patronize, not patronize, our sponsors. <laughs> yeah, that's very good. Yeah. All right. And of course, if you check your feed, there should have been a new episode of the Brew Files that came up all about how you move up from homebrewing to probrewing in the house of the mouse. So go listen to that and uh, enjoy. And if any of you homebrewers want to become uh, commercial brewers, we'll forgive you. The first thing I want to tell you about is Yakima Chief Hop and Brew School. It's a great event. I've been up there uh, for several years, uh, going out, touring hop farms, and just getting massive amounts of information about hops, how they're grown, how to use them, all that kind of stuff. This year, once again, it's going to be virtual, which is second only to being there in person. It runs from August 30th to September 3rd. You can find out more about it at hopandbrewschool.com slash yakima. Um, Drew and I are going to be helping with a session for homebrewers on September 2nd. And one of the really cool things I've got going is uh, 
hop assessment. And for a $15 fee for paying for shipping you the hops, you can get in on that, checking out new hop varieties, uh, learning about uh, how, how to assess those hops. It, it, it's just, if you're into hops, it's the thing that you want to do. So again, well, and they have three sessions this year, both for like exploring experimental hops, like new ones that haven't even been released, you know, hop blends. And then also I think they have one about the hops and beer usage. So it's like a combination pairing. Yeah, they've been doing a lot of uh, work, and that's what the cryopop was all about. They've been doing a lot of work on figuring out how to translate the flavors or the aromas of, you know, raw hops into what you get after you brew with them. And they're going to be doing more of that uh, in Hop and Brew School this year. So, again, we'll put the link up on our website, uh, hopandbrewschool.com slash Yakima. The other thing that we have coming up is the BYO Boot Camp in Denver from November 4th through 6th. We're going to be doing uh, sessions on simplifying your brewing. Well, bad jokes, all <laughs> stupid puns, all kinds of things. So go to byo.com slash boot camps and uh, get information on that. And you can sign up. And uh, for a little while longer, I believe, there's still a, a discount when you sign up, right? Yeah, until September 7th. Right. Oh, yeah. It says that right here, I guess, if I would just read it. huh? Mm. Funny that. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. Go, go and sign up, uh, and if you do, it's a hundred dollars off until until that date. So save yourself some money and come hang out with us in Denver, and we can all get nerdy about beer. <laughs> That's right. That's what we do. All right, and don't forget you can support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Click the AHA Amazon Brewers Friends or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is now. Project Freedom Ride. It's a dog transportation company. They work with dog rescues in Texas and Alabama to bring dogs up to new homes in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, wonderful, wonderful company. Good-hearted people. Uh, as I had mentioned before, that's where our dog, Britain, came from. And uh, Britain has been on the show before, but I think she's outside today. So we may hear her outside the window later. Yeah, if you ever hear those deep woofs. That's Britain. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That is definitely Britain. All right. Well, I don't know about you, but I think it's time for us not only go support some charities, but also go have a beer. Okay. We're going to be heading over to the Experimental Brewing Pub, and we're going to be having some beers. So stick around. We're going to be right back. Yakima Chief Hops is a 100% grower-owned global hop supplier located in the Pacific Northwest with a mission to connect family farms to the world's finest brewers. With their new online store, YCH products are now available wherever brewers choose to shop. Browse the aisles of your local homebrew store or buy direct from YCH at shop.yakimachief.com. Also, experience the new YCH Mobile Solutions app, a free, sustainable alternative to the popular hop variety handbook with information on more than 120 hop varieties to help you make the best beer possible. Available now in the Apple Store or at Google Play. The Brew Deck Podcast features exclusive interviews with your favorite brewers and suppliers. 
Each episode highlights new trends and brewing tips from leaders in the industry to inspire your next brew. Listen to the Brew Deck Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere somewhere in cyberspace, and we're having a couple beers today, and Drew is having something that makes my mouth water. Yeah, so you all remember that we had Jack's Abbey up on the Brew Files talking about making hoppy lagers, and ever since then, the folks at Jack's Abbey have thought very nicely of me to send me you know different things to try, and this time they sent me one of their beers, their Copper Legend Oktoberfest. And they sent me a four-pack of that to try, and boy, I'll tell you what, it's tasty. It's got that, <laughs> it, it, it is very much of the older school style of Oktoberfest, which we'll get into in a little bit, but it's very much of that older school Oktoberfest, chewy, rich without being cloying, and without being uh, heavy, right? So it gives you a, a big, round malt presence with all that sort of biscuit and toast and Zweibeck and all that. And then gets out of the way and lets you go for the next sip. And uh, I will also admit I've been enjoying it out of the little custom stein they sent me. So, yay. <laughs> yay, indeed. Yeah, that kind of reminds me of Iyengar Dunkel, too. You know, lots of delicious malt flavor, but not thick or cloying by any means. So. It sounds like Jack's Abbey knows how to make lagers, huh? Go figure. <laughs> Well, I'm having something a little bit unusual. I'm having a Pilsner from Bailbreaker. And you all have heard me talk about Bailbreaker before, but it's usually been an IPA, Pale Ale, Double IPA, something like that. Leota May. <laughs> yeah, that's an IPA. Um, they have taken their expertise and the amazing hops that they grow and directed them towards a Pilsner. And, you know, I, my first sip of this, the first thing that hit me was, Blueberry, which, of course, is totally out of place in a Pilsner. But, man, this beer is fantastic. You know, if you think of it, I mean, they call it a German Pilsner. And if you think of it as a German Pilsner, it's definitely weird because it's made with Simcoe, Laurel, and Palisade hops. Uh, but it has the the body and the malt flavor and the crispness of a Pilsner. Uh, it's 4.8%, 30 IBUs. And this beer I have just become addicted to. Uh, it's been out for several years. Somehow I just ran across it. I didn't see it before. But, man, if you have a chance to try it, please do. Because in hot weather, this is just an absolutely delicious beer. Like I said, it, it, it's crisp and refreshing like a, a Pilsner would be. But it's got these weird hops in it. <laughs> and I mean weird in a good way. Well, and it's funny because you say blueberry, which I'm guessing that's got to be the laurel. Yeah, I would um, guess so. 
And, I mean, you think about it from an American Pilsner perspective, an American Cremel perspective, that's not all that unusual. I mean, after all, for years, everybody used Cluster, which is, well, Cat Pea and Blackberry. So, you know, Berry is not out of place, except for maybe in a German Pilsner. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and, and, you know, and in cream ales and stuff, even with Cluster, I didn't get a big, uh, you know, berry kind of presence to it. So, well, what, whatever. I absolutely love this beer, and uh, I, I'm going to be searching out more of it. All right. And from a twist on a classic to more twisting of the IPA style, now we have to go into the Southern Hemisphere, all the way over to New Zealand. And, Denny, tell us about the latest IPA. Yeah, well, you know what, man? I have to give this one credit for actually being more of a new style than cold IPA is. Uh, Urbanot Brewing in Auckland, I believe, has come up with Crystal IPA that is basically an IPA that has no malt character whatsoever and is pretty much crystal clear. Um, they do a lot of carbon filtering and stuff like that. The malt that's in it is Lager Light from Gladfield. And I uh, got to know the people at Gladfield when I was down in New Zealand. Uh, great people, and they make some amazing malts, too. It's hopped at five stages in the boil, whirlpool, dry hopped before and after filtration, and then some hop oil is added. So there is, like, lots and lots of hop presence uh, it, it's kind of the opposite of a hazy IPA because uh, instead of being able to not see through it and uh, having hops that make it taste like orange juice, uh, this one is crystal clear. You can read a newspaper through it, and the hops are definitely very, very present. Um, it, it's well, weird, it, it, but it is at spooky. least it's different. I mean, it's spooky because in the picture that you can see of it, it is pretty dang water clear but with a, a light beer head on it, which is like, what? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's like, you know, maybe the color of champagne or something like that. Yeah, it's just got a light hint of something. And they say what I thought was interesting and what makes it seem out of reach for us, at least at the homebrew levels, is that they do a couple of things in order to get it that clear. They add activated charcoal to the fermenter itself. You know, so it says uh, activated carbon granules are added to the fermenter, which strip out some of the color. Then they run it through a centrifuge mm-hmm, to knock as much stuff out, you know, all the proteins and everything else. And then through a carbon filter again to get the clarity. Uh, I, I, I really wonder, you know, like with all the stuff they're doing before the filtration level, right? So that boil, the whirlpool and the dry hopping, or at least the first dry hopping. Like, just how much hop character actually survives running that gauntlet of filtration? Yeah, it's hard to say how much of that early stuff uh, does survive. The other thing that strikes me, too, is that this is a very labor and equipment-intensive process, uh, which makes me think that this is probably not something that's going to go very far or maybe even last very long, because, boy, what a pain it would be to make it. Yeah, well, and again, the, the centrifuge is going to uh, stop a lot of breweries from being able to do it, if assuming that it's necessary. So yeah, but just yeah, right. Just very interesting. Somebody made a made a hard IPA seltzer. <laughs> yeah, that's that's kind of the way it strikes me. So and again, as always, we'll have the link on our website so you guys can take a look at it for yourselves. There you go. All right, and then from there, from talking about an IPA seltzer. 
we've got to take a look in. There's been some moves recently in the beer industry that, you know, it's kind of like, oh, yeah. so one of the big ones is Boston Beer Company, of course, announced that they've been making increasing amounts of money from their truly hard seltzer line and from their twisted teas. And that's not a surprise. I mean, they've been making more money from those products than they have from beer for a good long while. But in the last report that they released, it was like between them and Dogfish Head, you know, which are all under the Boston Beer umbrella. Boston Beer was only making something like 10% of its revenue from beer, Um, which, yikes, but also plays into the news that they just announced, which is that they are going to start making, in conjunction with PepsiCo uh, Company, uh, hard Mountain Dew in like three different flavors. So... You're going to be able to find yourself a hard soda now. We're back to that stage of things. Um, and also, interestingly, tying into one of the stories that we talked about, they're going to be brewing it at the city brewing plant that has been taken over in Irwindale. So you remember I talked about this a couple episodes back, that Pabst had bought the Miller Coors Brewery in Irwindale, and then Pabst sold it to City Brewing because Pabst and a couple of other people bought City Brewing Company. And City Brewing Company, if you don't know, is one of, well, if not the largest one of the largest contract brewers in the U.S. and quite possibly the world. Uh, they brew a lot of beer that you don't know about. Um, so they're taking that over. They're doing that there. And then and then we got Lagunitas announcing that they're getting into the hard tea market next year. What the and hell? Wasn't somebody else going to be making like an alcoholic Mountain Dew? Was that Boston Beer? Yeah, no, that's what, that's what led this off was Boston Beer is going to ah. make a hard Mountain Dew. And then there's even the article that you and I talked about offline that uh, we didn't put in the show notes that was talking about a couple of kids in, I want to say, New Hampshire who started a startup to start brewing still hard seltzer. Yeah. uh Basically, what they're doing is they're making non-bubbly, alcoholic-flavored water. You know, I don't need alcohol that bad, thank you. Yeah, no, I'll just have a gin and tonic. Thank you very much. Yeah, that's uh, right. Well, I, I like the, uh, the the story of the creation of it. Oh, you know, I was mowing the lawn and drinking a hard seltzer and la, 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 la. Like, hi, Stumpy. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going to say, man. This guy now has a new nickname. It's either Stumpy or Bleedy. I don't know which one. <laughs> so that's happening there. And, of course, I think both Denny and I are resigned and yet a... Uh, uh, about all that, but then again, companies got to make money, so they're going to do what they're going to do. But I think as the meme goes online, for, uh, every day we stray further and further from the light. Um, now, having said that, I think, of course, you guys know I don't like to leave this stuff on a down note. The other thing I wanted to ask is, has anybody out there been engaging in direct consumer sales? So what I mean by that is the ability for you as a consumer, me as a uh, as a jerk with a keyboard and a computer, being able to log onto a brewery website, order beer, and have it shipped straight to my house. And I don't mean like the people who go out to your local liquor store like Drizzly and pull beer back to you. I mean like literally getting a shipment from the brewery. Um, at least here in California, that's been proven to be very, very popular over the this whole pandemic period. Uh, go figure. And I know they, they extended the orders that allowed direct to consumer to last until at least the end of the year. There's some talk about them making it permanent, which would be rad. Because in the past year, just to give you an idea, I've ordered things like a mixed case of Russian River IPAs, Russian River Plenty of the Younger, their brown ales. I have ordered mixed cases of beer from Firestone Walker and clean stuff that you can't just find anywhere. 
Sierra Nevada, uh, Sierra Nevada have been doing a Bigfoot mix case with like 10-year-old Sierra Nevada, Bigfoot, and all the way up to present day. And I ordered a bunch of that for use for my homebrew club so that we could do a vertical tasting of Bigfoot over the years. That's been stored properly. And then I just literally got a mixed case of IPAs from Hen House Brewing up there in uh, Santa Rosa, California. And they make really fantastic IPAs, so why not? And it's beer I wouldn't be able to get otherwise. So, And, and even for my Maltose Falcons Happy Hour project, we're about to do a direct-to-consumer version of it with Silva Brewing Company, which is way up the coast in, in Paso Robles, that none of us would be able to go and get their beer and bring it back in time. So direct-to-consumer has opened up this whole playing field has opened up all these market opportunities it's opened up all these you know tasting opportunities at least for brewers or, or you know i should say obsessed beer geeks hi so to me it's an it's kind of a good and i hope it continues and i know i think even ale song denny's favorite right they're yep. they're doing direct to consumer now largely focused around uh, oregon and uh, remember state and federal laws play very heavily into this so it's all very weird but I know that they even have a certain states that they can ship to, or at least for membership. So, like, I could be a member here in California, pay a little extra money, but that's okay. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm heading out there tomorrow to pick up my uh, club beers, and they would ship those to California for you if you wanted to. Yep. So, it's very interesting to me, direct-to-consumer. Um, like I said, I hope it stays, because I do think it's an opportunity for people to be able to get more exposure to places that are further away. Uh, and at the same time, it won't stop me from supporting my locals either. So, No, but I think that one of the things you said uh, is really quite key, and that is that uh, it's a marketing opportunity. It's just one more way for these guys to be able to sell their beer. Yep, exactly, and get it, to be, get it into the hands of people who otherwise would never have it. And by the way, the ones I mentioned, these are all bigger breweries or you know bigger names here in California. But there are a lot of smaller breweries around here that are doing either local direct-to-consumer, so like uh, my friend Kelsey at North Park Beer, uh, for a while at least, and I think he's still doing it. You could order beer from him, and based on where you were in San Diego, a driver would deliver that on a specific day. So, you know, you might get it for, you know, like 10 extra dollars on Wednesday, and, you know, that was your zone. And so it's very interesting to see the different things that people have been doing, and I really actually... You know, as a person who is still sort of skittish around crowds and sort of feral after 18 months, um, I like it. So go and double-check. Your locals might be doing some direct-to-consumer as well. So another chance for you to slide some money into the into the hands of the people who are good for you. Yep, that's a good thing. All right, enough of that. Time to go finish these beers and go talk about making some more. All right, we're going to take a quick break while we head over to the brewery. Stick around. We're going to be right back. New seasons bring new brewing adventures with Yeast's Belgian Summer Private Collection, featuring 3463 Forbidden Fruit, 3942 Belgian Wheat, and 5151 Britannomyces Clasenae. These premium liquid yeast strains bring you the opportunity to enhance your skills and elevate your experimental side. The dynamic fruitiness, spicy phenolics, and complex esters balance well with the malts, hops, and specialty ingredients of Belgian styles. For an adventurous twist, add seasonal fruit and berries, or try Brett C with its tropical tartness in your next creative fermentation. These strains are available now through the end of September. 
Visit yeastlab.com for homebrewing recipes, tips, and more about which styles pair best with these strains. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. Welcome back. We're over here in the brewery. Drew is making burbling noises like he's an airlock. See, I told you. I, I just don't know what to think about this guy. Uh, and we're going to be discussing some brewing trends, and I'll let Drew kick it off here. Yeah, so this one I actually thought was interesting because I found this in a uh, actually an ad from Anvil. So if you remember, Anvil is the uh, less expensive side of Blickman. I think that's the right way to put it. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's Blickman's other brand name. And the big thing that they've been selling recently has been the, the foundry, which is their version of the all in one systems, right? So you got them, Denny and I both use grandfathers, uh, which we really like. And then there are other things out there like Brazilla and Robo Brew and mash and boil and all, et cetera, et cetera. Now, all of those systems are for lack of a better way of putting it, a, a stainless steel brew in a bag. Right, the malt pipe is basically a, a a bag in a way. Um, so what I did think was interesting is, and I've actually uh, read of other people doing this as well, is Anvil is now sell- selling a brew bag made by the brew bag people that fits the foundry pipes, uh, just to offer you another way of uh, you know filtering the the wort. And I have seen people doing that with the other systems like the Robo Brew and the Brusilla. Um, I'm really curious to see if anybody has any experiences out there that they can share with us about it. I think it's an interesting idea, particularly because sometimes those, depending upon the system you have, sometimes the filtration systems aren't perfect. So maybe you go to a a brew bag just because you really want to get everything out of the, you know, out of the wort before you, you start boiling. Um, I will also say that the brew bag literally here, the capital T there, the brew bag as a company, they make actually, I think, a really good product. Uh, Denny and I both have a couple of their bags, and yep. their bags are what we use on our little mini, uh, mini brew in a bag induction burner setups. So, high quality product there. Really interesting to see people applying it into the all in one type systems. And I'd be curious to see what anybody's experiences are. Denny, would you have a, would you have any reason to think that you'd want to use something like that? 
Uh, only if I started having problems, and I never have, so, you know, I, I don't see any real need for it for me. Uh, I do find it kind of interesting that Anvil is kind of admitting that uh, their system isn't as well designed as it could be, but... Well, I don't, think it's, I don't think it's that. I think it's just that I mean, all the all-in-one systems I've played with, you know, they... Yeah, you know, they do. I mean, you do get grain particles sometimes in the uh, in the boil, right? I've seen yeah. it with I've seen it with my grandfather. I've seen it with you know definitely the mash and boil. The uh, question is, is that an issue? Yeah, but, uh, but I, I've I had a situation recently where I got a lot of grain uh, in the boil for because I screwed up a batch on on the G seventy, and you know what? It didn't make any difference whatsoever. Oh no, but you know that there are people out there who they want to have. All that step perfect, so it makes some sense for people like that who are that persnickety, who, so, who haven't actually tried it and found out that it's unnecessary. Well, I mean, look, I still do things that are unnecessary just because that's the way I brew. I know, and I try not to. <laughs> True. So anyway, just throw it out there to the audience. Any y'all have a uh, a burning desire or burning experience to using a brew in a bag type setup with your all in one systems? Let us know at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. I'm Curious to see what value people see in it and whether or not they'd want to go spend. I think it's like an additional fifty bucks to get the the brew the brew bag for the foundry. So, uh, be interested to hear what people think. Yeah, you know, and I'm not I'm not dissing anybody who wants to use it. I mean, you know, we all have our own preferences and ways of doing things. So if it works for you, it works for you. At this point, I haven't seen a need for it, but if I did, I'd do it. So. From going in brewing a bag, this is actually inspired by a Facebook post of yours, Denny, where you had admitted it had been seven years since you'd made a particular style. Yeah, um, in my Facebook memory today, it came up with, uh, I was brewing an Oktoberfest seven years ago today, and I think that's probably about the last time I made one, actually. Uh, I, I still like the style, although my tastes have evolved somewhat so that, you know, it's nothing I would be drinking a lot of. Uh, Paula, as I've said many times, is pretty much an IPA girl, so, uh, you know, not really into the sweeter, maltier styles. So at this point, if I want an Oktoberfest, I'll just go out and buy something good because uh, a six-pack or two will be about right, and five gallons would be more than I would enjoy drinking. But it, it was interesting to see that uh, it's been seven years. Mm-hmm. Well, and then speaking of going out and buying things – it's funny to me because right now, as we're as we're recording this, this is still the middle of August, um, and I'm now starting to see Oktoberfests appear on the market. Right, you know, it's kind of like you know the pumpkin spice thing, but just for multi beer. And you know, the two prime examples I think that everybody should be able to get at least from the American side, because you know me and German imported beer. I generally tend to think our German imports lack in character just due to sitting on a boat for too damn long. Um, but the two American ones that I always see and try are the Sierra Nevadas, which they do a, a slightly different thing with every year. Um, and then also Firestone Walker, which has their Oaktoberfest because they actually lager it in their oak barrels. So both of those are really actually good American versions of the style. I know the Sierra Nevada one, uh, varies a little bit year to year. Trying to remember, uh, last year's wasn't a hoppy. There was one like what three years ago that was a hoppier version. Yeah, I think that's about right. Yeah, and so the, the, they vary it up. They team they team up with uh, what in the past they've teamed up with Weisstefaner, for instance, um, and they're 
they're really good beers. And but what's funny to me is that oh, and also don't forget I I was talking about Copper Legend up at the front, you know, in the pub, and that's also an Oktoberfest. So it's interesting to me that as a style, it is it is one of the few. No, actually, I'm going to take it back. It's the only malt forward style that I can think of that still has a sort of a seasonal excitement to it. Like, yeah, maybe, maybe a couple winter beers, you know, Christmas styles, but yeah, I think that in general, that's exactly true. Yeah. All right. Cause I mean, hell, even Sierra Nevada got rid of, uh, what Summerfest this year to, for their summer break, hazy IPA. <laughs> Don't get me started. I know, but, uh, it's interesting to see that this is like one sort of malt forward style that's still allowed to, to, to shine. The other one I think is interesting is the Copper Legend and Oktoberfest are both falling into that sort of classic Märzen style of Oktoberfest, you know, the March beer style with the amber color, the darker, uh, darker style of beer, which I don't know about you, Denny, but like when I was growing up as a, as a beer geek, that's what everybody assumed Oktoberfest was, right? Yeah, oh, definitely so. Yeah, it's got to be. It's got to be this, you know, nothing but Munich malt, you know, full heavy. Well, not heavy, but you know, full bodied, you know, amberish thing. Well, and it turns out that hasn't been really the beer of Oktoberfest for decades now. <laughs> and instead, the beer that you that you get at Oktoberfest is what they would call fest beer, which is effectively a super hellas. And we've talked a little bit about this in the past. And a super hell is because it's now like five and a half, six percent. And what you know, I, I, I like both versions, really, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, they, they get kind of different points across. But what I do think is interesting is at least in the past six years or so, that distinction has become more apparent here in the U.S. Uh, I talked to a guy who who was a, uh, a Spaten, um distributor here in L.A. And I asked him about the Fest beer, about... 15 years ago. And I asked him, I said, well, Hey, why don't, why don't we see that over here? And he's like, well, because if we bring that over here, Americans don't buy it. And so that's the reason, like literally the reason for the Meritson to still be in existence is because we, uh, American beer geeks bought it because, Hey, that's Oktoberfest. That's what it should be. Um, but now we're actually starting to see examples of fest beer here. So just interesting to me. Well, you know, uh, yeah. and what I was thinking too is like, you know, we're talking about American examples of Oktoberfest, and we started off by talking about an American example of a Pilsner. So I, I'm finding it really interesting that maybe because of what you were talking about, the the difficulty of getting good foreign beer over here, maybe American brewers have started doing it themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and no matter what, yeah, I mean, there are always going to be people who are going to be sort of. Uh, uh, pure slash chauvinist about it. Like, you know, oh, nobody can make a hell as, as good as the Germans do. And in general, probably correct. Uh, however, I would trust Sierra Nevada and Firestone Walker to be able to pull that off. Um, but I, I've told the story before. Like, I never liked Pilsner until I tried Trumer Pills when it was fresh off the tap in the brewery at Berkeley. And then I went, oh, now I this get it. This is what it's supposed to be, huh? You know? Yeah. So, I like Oktoberfest. Uh, your post made me realize it's been forever and a damn day since I've made one. And I really feel like I want to go make a fest beer version just because it's still uh, October here in LA. It's still hotter than hell. And so therefore I feel like the fest beer version would uh, play out better here than the Amber Mertzen. So, uh, 
expect a show on that before too long. <laughs> cool. Yeah. All right. And we've already established that Denny doesn't want to make another one because he'll just go out and buy buy a six pack to satisfy his urges. Well, you know, again, I I just don't need five gallons of it around. Uh, I have I have a lot of. Uh, Strong beers and multi beers taking up room in my uh, my chest freezer right now, and you know those kegs are going to be there for months and months. So no point in doing another one. There you go. All right, and then the last uh, piece to talk about here in the brewery is if you haven't been paying attention, this is uh, Mead Month with the AHA, and the AHA has been giving away uh, the complete Mead Maker by Ken Schram as a membership bonus. And that reminded me, I've got some honey sitting out in the uh, in the brewery, and because it's just too damn hot to actually brew right now, why not make a mead? And so I've made lots of different meads over the past, but one I've never tried to do is a boche, right? And so boche is uh, literally burnt honey mead. Uh, essentially, you super caramelize the honey and use that as the foundation. It makes this really sort of wonderful, complex, dark. Uh, mead just from the honey and traditionally it's kind of a pain because you're sitting there with a pot stirring the mead and of course you know since it's a sugar syrup it does two things uh it well three things it caramelizes it burns and it also scorches uh so uh, it's kind of a dangerous thing to do right and because the honey will also foam up unlike say sugar foams up in a very dramatic way so you got to be very careful with it and I've just never really felt the burning desire to burn myself with caramelized honey. And <laughs> Come on, you might enjoy it. There's a first for everything. Um, and so what I'm going to do actually to make this boche is I went and did some research and I found in the uh, AHA's collection of past presentations, there was a presentation from Brian Wolf and John Wilson uh, from 2019 at HomebrewCon where they talked about making better boches. And one of their cheats was actually using an Instapot pressure cooker and using that to actually, you know, control the creation of the the caramelization. And you can, you know, you can't really control the temperature as much as you can control the time, right? And so they they have a, a boche in there that uses different honeys cooked for different periods of time. So like low pressure for 15 minutes and low pressure for 25 minutes, just to give you some additional complexity. And to me, that sounded like an interesting technique to try and something that I could throw together in a lazy afternoon in my kitchen. So I'm going to go try and make a pressure cooker boche. That sounds cool, man. Let me know how it comes out. Oh, yeah. Well, I suspect it's also going to get hit with some of the vanilla extract. <laughs> <laughs> so, and uh, Denny, I know the last time we had talked, you'd had an IPA in the in flight uh Got anything going? Um, you know, I'm just getting to cold crashing the IPA. I'm going to start dry hopping it, though, probably in the next day or so. Uh, I did take a test of it uh, before I started cold crashing, put some in a pet bottle, carbonated it up. And I got to say, wow, uh, loading it up on those late hops, following the info from the uh, Yakima Chief Survivables booklet, uh, first taste is very impressive. There you go, then. All right, and speaking of Yakima Chief and hops and survivables, let's go do some of that. Yeah, let's do, actually. We're going to take a quick break now, and when we come back, we'll be talking to Spencer from Yakima Chief and a couple other people about the new Cryopop hops and what they're doing with them. So stick around. 
Does your fermenter need to have Wi-Fi? Not necessarily, but is a Wi-Fi-enabled fermenter incredibly useful? You bet. Using the Grainfather app, brewers can monitor and adjust fermentation from anywhere in the world, a feature that could come in handy if you want to start a diacetyl rest while sipping an umbrella drink on the beach. The new and improved Grainfather Conical Fermenter Pro is constructed from 304 stainless steel and has a total work capacity of 8 gallons, making it just the right size for your 5-gallon batches with plenty of headspace. A 1.5-inch tri-clamp on the lid allows up to 2 PSI of top pressure for work transfers, and the 2-inch tri-clamp port on the bottom of the cone makes true dumps a snap. Particularly nifty is the dual function valve that lets you transfer and sample beer or pull yeast using the same valve. The integrated 12-volt, 30-watt heating element makes it easy to gently warm your fermenter, while a built-in cooling sleeve only needs to be connected to an optional chiller to get the temperature down. The new and improved Grainfather Conical Fermenter Pro is available now at grainfather.com or at a homebrew shop near you. Mechagrade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their 8th generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mechagrade. For more information, please visit mechagrade.com. Welcome back. We got the comfy chairs. We got the we got the suede jackets. We got the fuzzy slippers. It's time to lounge. And in this particular edition of the lounge, we're actually talking to two folks: uh, Spencer Tickelmeyer of Yakima Chief Hops, uh, and who is, I mean, really, what is he? He's like one of the Yakima Chief's mad scientists. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to put it, huh? And. You know, we've been talking a lot about the survivable stuff that, uh, that they've put out and all that research that's happening that Denny just mentioned has helped make an IPA that seems stellar, even in its fresh taste. Um, so we're talking to Spencer about a product that he's helped Yakima Chief develop. And we're talking to Joe Wells from Fair State Brewing Company up there in Minnesota. He's the, he's the head brewer there. And he actually got to use this new product. Now, the new product, we've alluded to it a couple times, is their Cryopop Hop Blend. And what's interesting about this is in the past with the other hop blends that they've done, so things like, say, the Veterans Blend, the Pink Boots Blend, uh, the Falconer's Flight and the Seven Seas, and all these other blends that they have, right, where they all have kind of a goal. And they always talk about them as like, oh, yeah, that's a mixture of Simcoe and Laurel and this hop and this hop and that hop. This isn't done that way. This is not, <laughs> hey, can we get the qualities of Simcoe into this along with the qualities of Laurel? 
This is a blend that is very specifically designed to pump in a lot of those survivable compounds. So it's not about the individual hop varieties going into it as much as the individual compounds are going in. So it's really fascinating. Sit back and hold on to your butts. All right. Well, hey, welcome back. And you know that we've been talking a lot about hops recently. Hops are... The big thing. It's what's driving both American craft brewing and American home brewing. And as we've pointed out with things like shorter dry hopping times and different processes and do you stir, do you rouse, do you do this? How many days of dry hops, uh, you know, should any hops go in the kettle? Hop usage has become far more complicated than it ever used to be. And some folks are out there trying to give us some actual frameworks around how to think about using our hops and how to get the most out of our hops. So let's go ahead and let's uh, dive right in. Uh, uh, Spencer, introduce yourself to everybody. Yeah, hi there. Thanks for having me on, guys. My name is Spencer Tilkemeyer. I'm the Brewing Innovations Lead for Yakima Chief Hops, based in Yakima, Washington. Uh, I think most of your listeners will probably know us uh, for our involvement in sort of the homebrew world and also the just the craft beer world in general. Um, I'm a former brewer of about 10 years and have been with Yakima Chief and working on the Brewing Innovations team for about four years, so... Thanks for having me on today. Thank you. And, of course, it can't be just talking about hops with, you know, hop science. We also have to get into some of the practical side of it. And so uh, we have somebody who's actually used what we're going to talk about here. Uh, Joe, introduce yourself and where are you from? Hey, guys. Uh, my name is Joe Wells. I am the head brewer at Fair State Brewing Cooperative in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. I've uh, been in the industry for close to a decade now and been here at, with Fair State for about three years Uh and pretty pretty excited to use these uh, these hops we're talking about. All right, so let's uh, let's lay down the the groundwork here because we've talked about survivables before on the show. Uh, you know, we had um, Scott Janish on here uh, doing some of his uh, talk about what he's found. Spencer, let's talk a little bit about survivables and how your group gets involved in that. Yeah, I, I suppose that's a kind of a story that's more or less four years in the making. Uh, there were some forward-thinking uh, lab folk of ours that decided uh, a while back that it would be worth worth getting some capital investment in a few different pieces of machinery uh, on the lab side that would allow us to do some really, really specific analytical work. So beyond just the GCMS, there's other detectors that uh, really can get down into the minutiae of some very, very gran- granular identification of compounds, so specifically a GC QTOF and a GC SCD. And I, just for what it's worth, I'm not a chemist, so um, so I uh, I work with a lot of them, but I, I'm a brewer at heart. So I'll, I'll give you um, uh, sort of a brewer's eye view of, of a lot of what we've done here. But um, basically, that you know, at that time, our lab staff, particularly our R&D labs, started measuring uh, harvest analysis with uh, you know in much more specificity. And kind of quietly doing so in the background. It was not something that I was particularly aware of at the time. Until Pat one day, as some of you may know Pat if you've met him, and he's been in the op industry for a long time and is a brilliant chemist. Kind of just threw a couple of graphs uh, in our direction. This, And by our direction, I mean some of the brewing innovation staff. And uh, they were pretty novel. I uh, when, when I kind of... Looked at them for a while and, and sort of thought about the implications. Um, I realized that we were onto something that could have a ton of uh, resonance for brewers around the world. Um, 
ultimately I work kind of in the conduit space between brewers and the lab staff. So my job is to kind of think about how to translate what we do from a research perspective into practical uh, either products or advice for brewers. So I would say originally the survivables research was not necessarily intended to be a brewer tool, but it's really morphed into being that over time because what it really focuses on is sort of bridging the gap between raw hop aroma, so what we smell in, in a pellet format or in a whole cone format, and what actually translates to beer. And I think that's sort of a, a question that's befuddled brewers for a lot of years is, okay, I've got this gorgeous smelling uh, Equinot, for example, and but what I smell in it is different in beer than it is in the raw hop format. And so how do I know what's going to translate? So, yeah, specifically working on, you know, looking at solubility. I think that's like the main, if there's one thing for people to take away from this research, it's uh, a focus upon what is soluble, what what ultimately wants to live in beer versus what ultimately wants to get out of beer or escape from beer. And I think working backwards from that headspace allows us to make better judgments and better decisions on the recipe design side, on the brewing side, on the hop growing side, hop breeding side. So there's a, a whole slew of implications to it. And I think we're kind of at the tip of the iceberg right now. But my favorite part about it, just like I say, as a brewer, I'm a brewer at heart, is um, there's a huge amount of practicality to it. It's not just a white paper in which somebody presents it and they're like, yeah, so we, we found out some stuff, but not sure how to tell you to affect your brewing processes as a result of it. <laughs> this is really something that people can take practical advice away from it. So. Yeah, I was going to say, it, reading through, and you guys have produced a really nice little uh, booklet that's been sent out to people, but reading through that and reading through some of the other presentations that have been out there, you did a, uh, a Hop and Brew School session recently online that I think people can still access and if they want to go back and see like a full version of a talk. Um, it really struck me that when we talk about survivables, what you're really saying is not, it's solubility and more efficient and better use of hops because, hey, these hops have characteristics that hang in there as mm -hmm. opposed to others, right? Absolutely. I think the tool, particularly the survivables chart, and if anybody doesn't have a copy of that chart, that's something that can be downloaded on our website or at hopandbrewschool.com. And it's essentially what it is, is it's a chart of beer soluble compounds and it's ranked by variety. So I always tell people don't don't think of that graph as a good bad graph that would be a miss sort of a misuse of what it's intended to be it's not a good bad graph the, all the hops that are on there are on there for a reason there's merits to each of them what i always kind of encourage people to think about is this this um hops are expensive ultimately they're expensive to grow they're expensive to buy and use what we don't want you doing is using a hop in the, in sort of its wrong timing where you're where you're getting very little out of it right so i always use azaka as my guinea pig Azaka is a, an excellent hop, but it's it's relatively low in compounds that have a durability to survive heat and uh, and fermentation. So Azaka is likely to find its best usage if you're if you're using it in post firm dry hop rather than throwing it into the whirlpool. And I think that's really practical takeaways for a brewer, right? Because as a home brewer out there, you know, like you've got an IPA recipe down, it's very helpful to think about that you know things from that perspective and think you know if I want to get the bang for my buck out of Azaka. I would do better to place it here rather than here and, you know, and, and choose something maybe more appropriate for Whirlpool or for active fermentation dry hop. And I think that's such a it's a it's rudimentary on some level. And I think we'll it'll continue to refine over time. But it's such a giant leap in terms of what the hop industry has been able to deliver in terms of practical advice, I think, from anything that we've had before. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it, what it feels like to me, and uh, Denny, you can you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but or if you have a different opinion, it, it, it feels like to me that what we're starting to go down the path of is trying to definitively put guide rails around some of what some brewers have been able to just kind of intuit and now actually spread that knowledge in a lot of ways. Um, I did have to laugh looking at this graph. So you'd mentioned Azaka as like a perfect example of like, hey, you know, here's a hop that is much better used as a dry hop than as a warm side hop. Um, but I also noticed that on that graph, Centennial, which is every grower's favorite hop, uh, <laughs> it is all the way there on the high survivables chart. I'm surprised that you didn't get uh, uh, people begging you not to put Centennial on the chart. Uh, we, we had some, uh, hand wringing about that, as you can imagine for those that don't know, I'm sure your listeners know Centennial is a really rough hop to grow. It, it, it can be a very variable yielder. It has storage issues. It's, it's, if it weren't so gorgeous in beer, it would have died out a long time ago because it's, it's really challenging from a grower perspective. But as you mentioned, Drew, I mean, there's, if anything, this just affirms why Centennial has hung around for so long. It's that it's powerful. It, it makes a huge impact in beer. You know, one thing I will mention, not to get too deep in the weeds of the chart, is Centennial is really, really dominant uh, on, on two compounds in general. So one of the things that's like, I think, one of the practical takeaways of, of all this is trying to balance components and stuff mm -hmm. like that. So Centennial, though it's really, really high, is not ex is not super well balanced. It's really high in methyl geranate and geraniol. They're, they're two important compounds, but um, methyl geranate is among the, the, the least soluble of that soluble group so not to like to, to add another layer of complexity to it but so i wouldn't say um don't be like too um overwhelmed by the centennial's position on the on the graph there is some some explanation to it but to your point though it's um it's a powerful hop there's a reason why it's been a force in craft beer for so long and that's just because it makes gorgeous beer you know so it it is kind of an interesting thing. We did we did worry about though that we might get some hate mail from growers on that. <laughs> so I kind of figured. Well, and yeah. you, you you just briefly touched on it, but I thought one other practical takeaway in the booklet was what you were just talking about blending for effect. Mm -hmm. Can you can you touch on that? Yeah, you bet. So you know we'll, we'll talk about the cryopop blend in a second, which is which is really the practical fruit of of all of this research, but. Uh, just in general, what I would say is our goal is, uh, as this research has developed, we originally thought of it as just like total quantity of compounds, right? Uh -huh. How do we max it out? And our understanding of it, as we've done more and more with it and brewed more beers with, under these theories, has shown that it's probably more about the balance between components than it is just the sheer quantity themselves. I think it's probably both things at once, you know? So... When a hop is really, really skewed in one direction, take laurel, for example. Laurel is just an insanely high linalool hop. It's it's totally chock full of it. Um, it's not super well balanced on other varieties, though. So it's one of the reasons why we've, why we've always thought it makes a great blending hop. Um, Centennial is another great example, or talus. Both of those are geraniol dominant and not as well balanced on other varieties. So a centennial laurel combo or a talus laurel combo is much more likely to be a very dynamic dry hop blend than something like Laurel and Crystal, for example. Crystal is also extremely skewed towards linalool. And, um, at, you know, in general, I would say uh, Laurel and Crystal would probably make a pretty one-noted and maybe less dynamic or less sort of um, uh, a blend with less depth, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So it's one of the, I think, practical takeaways for brewers is trying to sort of arrange their hot blends to where they're they're covering a, a, a good array of compounds 
rather than just being um, really strictly dominant on one side or another. And I think that's that's practical tactics that 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 we haven't had before. So. All right. All right. Well, so before we get into the cryopop, I wanted to switch over to Joe real quick. Joe, when did you start seeing and hearing about this stuff, all these uh, survivables? Yeah. So we started working with with uh, YCH, oh, probably, I think it was almost a year and a half, two years ago, uh, doing some trial blends with them. So we've been, we've been working with the cryopop blends for quite a while. Um, I think we're on our, what, third or fourth Spencer, something like that. Yeah, if not more. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, we've we've done a bunch of one-off IPAs with them and have, have been really impressed with, like, the amount of punch that you get out of these hops. I, I liken it to, like, you know, you guys remember the movie Moneyball? Uh-huh. Uh, you know, it's, it's looking at these hops that perhaps are less appreciated, like Crystal, which I'm a huge fan of, um, that have a lot of oil and... Uh, we can get a lot of impact out of them and we can make something that's desirable that doesn't have galaxy in it. Uh, so it's, it's kind of, kind of interesting and, and pretty cool from the side. Right. And then, and, uh, but even before we get into the blends, I mean, had, had you started playing around with the whole, that, that whole survivable notion then? Uh, I, I learned about it first with the blends through Spencer. Okay. Um, our, our pilot, our R&D brewer, uh, Nico, our founding brewer, uh, he's been working on this project for quite a while, and that's how I came aware of the whole concept. It makes sense. I mean, it's a pretty, pretty interesting science that goes into it. Yeah, but don't we miss the days when uh, hops used to just be easy? Wait, what's the alpha acid? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, those days are gone forever, I think. Gone are those days. <laughs> All right. Well, so then let's, I think, let's break into the sort of the practical. Well, okay. So we have the practical fruit in terms of advice for, you know, what to use. Like, hey, you know, look at these apps. If they have a lot of survivable compounds and they make really good early additions, so boil kettle additions, whirlpool additions, anything on the hot side, the less, uh, the less potent in terms of survivals will have more of an impact when you're later in the process of your, your dry hopping. And then also blend, choose hops to blend for different dynamic oils or to emphasize one oil if that's what you're going for, because uh, I can already anticipate Denny saying that. Um, <laughs> so you, you guys have this science, and, of course, Yakima Chief is famous for doing all sorts of blends. You've got, you know, what, Falconer's Flight, Pink Boots every year, Veterans Blend. But now this is a whole new idea of a blend, Right. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, you know, and as Joe mentioned, too, that, you know, Fair State was heavily involved in the sort of the development of this process because we needed some some brewers that were willing to sort of take a chance on some batches that we weren't sure would actually work out completely like we hoped they would. And and they were very willing and and able to sort of like uh, walk with us uh, side by side throughout that process. So we've been grateful to them throughout the whole thing. And it's uh, I think what it started with uh it started as arrogance i'll just go ahead and call it a spade a spade (laughs) when we first came out with the graph we just said to ourselves how do we beat it right Mm -hmm. and that was like our that was our overarching sort of day one notion so we created like four thousand pounds of a blend of hops that we thought to ourselves like okay this is going to sit at the very top of the graph and 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 we by and large we achieved that and like i said over time and and after we as we brewed it with it with fair state and internally and stuff we started to get to develop a more sophisticated notion of it 
which is like, okay, it's not just about um, getting the blend to be like the highest uh, on on the graph as it possibly can be. It's it's actually more probably worth paying more attention to sort of the balance and synergies between the components themselves. So, in essence, I you know one of the things that we've worked really hard to overcome is this perception in the market that blends are just the leftovers, right? Uh-huh. And that's that's a common refrain that we've gotten all over. And and vendors have been accused of that over the years, and sometimes rightly, right? Sometimes that in, historically that was the case. But I can say like th- this was designed from the exact opposite perspective. It was how do we be as choosy as we can possibly be about what goes into a blend to assure that it is the most potent and synergistic blend that we can possibly create. So it was designed from the exact, exact opposite headspace. How do we take 40 million pounds of bales and look at not just a certain variety, but what lot within that variety is going to have the most you know, potent sort of arrangement of compounds to, to create this, this incredible uh, blend? So unlike sort of what, what blends have been accused of in the past, it is absolutely a, a premium product in every way just because of the way it was designed. Right. And so. and then I think just to set the stage, because I know I know we said in the introduction, but to set the stage internally in the talk, I, we're talking about the brand new Cryopop blend that you guys have just released. Um, and again, to your point, it's custom designed to effectively deliver a big punch of flavor. Now, in particular, in this case, it's a lot of the fruits, right? And this is very this is sort of very geared towards. Uh, sort of the modern hazy movement, but this this was a lot of uh, uh, fruit notes like strawberry and 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 other compounds. At least when I tasted it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's um, you know typically what we're getting out of it, uh, particularly the Cryopop original blend, is uh, a lot of pineapple, a lot of uh, citrus. Some people say orange, some people say grapefruit, and a huge amount of stone fruit. So particularly peach, cherry, and sometimes some berry, strawberry type things. Mm-hmm. Um, what we were hoping for with this blend as sort of the first first foray into it, and, and it did it was refined over time, like we said, with, with Fair State and with others, is uh, to hit that dead middle of sort of the modern IPA window, aroma window, right? Which is essentially, you know, tropical fruit, citrus, and uh, stone fruit or berry. Um, those are kind of like, that's sort of that, that dead middle of, of what people are trying to go for and what we see commonly uh, resonating with customers in the market. And I, I think, like, like I say, it, it took us some, a few iterations, but by and large, I think we've achieved that in, in, a, in a really impressive way. Um, and what that's allowing us to do is further go down a further path uh, of kind of creating accompanying blends that we hope to release into the future, which sort of further go down that path of, of specific profiles. So like, okay, we've hit that dead middle window of what an IPA is in, in modern sort of uh, modern brewing. Is, there, is it possible to create additional blends that, that are like, for example, berry, which is a very difficult profile to hit, or mango, which is a very difficult profile to hit? And though that's sort of like the next frontier of the research, I think, but not to get too ahead of ourselves here. But um, overall, I think what I love most about the blend is it has this ability to be like insanely user-friendly for, for brewers who are kind of new to, for example, New England IPA brewing, novice brewers, uh, or just people who have been you know, more, you know, focused on continental brewing for a long time, or it can be used, you know, very specifically by super, super in-depth expert brewers who are like, I really want to amplify my, my uh, finger cap to hexanol in this beer. And I really want to, you know, amp up certain characteristics of, of very specific com- components. I think it has this dynamism that fits different types of brewers, different styles. Um, and that's 
what ultimately makes me excited for it uh, for uh, in terms of its global ap- applicability, I guess. Right, and so actually, let's let's talk a little bit about the usage of it because, along with the booklet and everything else, you guys had had worked with Fair State, as you said, to brew multiple trial batches. And Joe, you guys had released a beer called Cryopop, and I got a couple of cans of it, and so did Denny. And just from a, an organoleptic standpoint, you know, before we get into the nitty gritty about it, I will tell you that when I popped that first can. Even before I got it anywhere near a glass, like just popping open the can, it was like, whoa. All right. It was, it was yeah, a giant punch. I can confirm that, man. Uh, it, it was just an amazing aroma coming out of there. Yeah, and, and by the way, this is from Denny, who is not necessarily a hazy IPA fan. Well, I'm uh, you know, if we want to get into the beer, I thought that the aroma and flavor was great, but uh, the texture was just something I don't personally care for. Yeah, well, and that's again the 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 not the well, I mean that is kind of one of the problems with hazy sometimes, but and and particularly perception wise. But let's get into Joe. How did how did you how how is this beer structured, and how are you best taking advantage of what the cryopop is giving you? Yeah, so I mean, thank thank you for the kind words. That's one of those uh, IPA things that we always strive for: is the you open the can or you open the bottle, and you immediately are slapped in the face with the aroma before you've even poured it. It's uh, it's it's always something that we are very happy when we can accomplish. So, uh, but um, you know, that beer we 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 modeled it after most of our uh, most of our hazy IPAs. You know, it's just a pretty pretty standard grist. Uh, it's got a, a fair bit of wheat, um, and uh, it's mashed fairly high, so we can get a, a slightly higher finishing gravity. You know, it's like three and a half or so, thirty-three and a half somewhere in there. Um, we used a little bit of the cryopop in the whirlpool, along with some Simcoe, and then uh, we just dry hopped it fairly heavily uh, twice, once near the end of active fermentation, and then once after fermentation had finished and then centrifuged it uh, to get out the hot particles. So pretty pretty basic, pretty standard hazy IPA production process flow. Uh, but, you know, the, the proof is in the pudding is those hops, you know, for their weight, uh, they, punch, they punch pretty high. So, uh, yeah. Well, so let's talk about that because you said it sounded like two dry hop additions and a little bit of Whirlpool. Um, but let's focus specifically on the dry hop because I think that's one of the places where this is going to really shine. Like, how long of a dry hop are we talking about here? A couple days? Uh, we throw in uh, about half of the dry hop load um, after about five days of fermentation, uh-huh. and then uh, the other half goes in around the seven day mark, uh-huh. and we're only crashing right at the nine day mark. So. The longest hops are in there is four days, right? And uh, that second load just gets about two days warm contact, and that's warm for our our cool sheets, which is uh, 65F. Uh-huh. And um, you know we we crash after that and drop out the hops, and then are fuging probably by day 11 or so. Right, and uh, I guess the uh, the centrifuge also helps explain why we don't have that. Uh, or at least some of that hot burn uh, that that we normally that I normally see with hazy IPAs. Um, getting getting particulate out of suspension is uh, pretty pretty nice. <laughs> yeah, uh, centrifuges they're wonderful toys. Uh, <laughs> now, 
when we're talking about the uh, the cryopop itself, when you're using it, uh, like in comparison to what you would normally do with your your hazies, did you change that hopping rate at all, or did you stick to the same hopping rate? Uh, we stuck to the same rate. We're shooting right around uh, four barrels or four pounds per barrel, uh, which for us is about par for the course for any kind of standard IPA. Mm-hmm. Uh, we find that going above that, we end up just you know we're throwing throwing hops in without getting any real impact out of them, and below that you don't get the uh, the the punchiness as well as the the mouth feel and the the you know creaminess that you get from having all of those solubilized oils. Mm-hmm. And so, given that you're just using the cryopop here, and you said with just a little bit of Simcoe, I guess to provide a little base base back note, if you weren't using the cryopop, what do you think it would take to replicate those? Uh, to get that amount of impact, it probably would have been three or four hops, and we would have been around the five five and a half pound per barrel mark. Um, you know, it just it's not we're not going to get that kind of depth with one hop variety or two hop varieties. And we're not going to get that much punch out of that little Denny, you got any practical brewing questions? Uh, no, not really. I think that a lot of my questions were answered by the uh, the booklet. Uh, I had already used some of the cryopop just to uh, to dry hop a batch. Uh, basically, I'd, I'd split a 12-gallon batch into two 6-gallon fermenters, uh, uh, dry hopped one with some uh, traditional T90s and the other one with, uh, oh, I guess a couple ounces of the cryopop just so I could kind of compare uh, and it was it was very impressive but boy the survivables booklet gives me a whole lot more guidance on what to do with them the next time uh, well and I wanted to say I know we've been talking a lot about hazy IPAs but there's even actually a west coast IPA uh, recipe in the booklet so yay us older folks have not been ignored <laughs> we, we don't. We definitely don't want to be think, think, uh, it to be thought of as a one-trick pony either. For what it's worth, it can perform in any beer. Uh, so it's not. It's not uh, New England IPA exclusive. But right. that's that tends to be how people are thinking of it right now, just because of obviously the the, the current of of uh, what's what's selling in the market and things like that. And it certainly performs in that space too. But yeah, absolutely. Well, and so Joe, any any other practical advice for for people about using like a cryopop here like cuz again you said you guys have now used this multiple times so any any other thoughts about really what to do and what to look for uh, you know i mean it's I, i'm a big fan of it i think it turned out really well uh, i think the variety we're definitely going to be using it again um, you know, it is a cryo product so you know when i say 4 pounds per barrel i really mean 2 pounds of cryo we always talk in T90 equivalent, right. uh, but, uh, you know, try it out, go with a, a, a healthy dose, and I think people will, will really enjoy the product that comes out of it. All right, there you go. And, Spencer, I did forget to ask you one thing earlier, because, you know, in Joe's example here, a little bit in the Whirlpool, and then uh, those two dry hop additions, one of uh, while fermentation is happening, the other one post-fermentation, you had also talked about seeing actual synergistic differences between uh, the usages of you know multiple hops versus this blend, right? If I remember from the talk, like a reason to go for the blend yeah. as opposed to just like trying to figure out how to do it with individual hops. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that was going to be the one piece of practical brewing advice that I could share. Nico and I worked on on that uh, quite a bit early on, which was. Uh, 
there's not only I would I say a, a, a substantial difference between when when this blend is used in active fermentation dry hopping versus post fermentation dry hopping. So I, the way that Joe and Nico pulled off this cryopop beer was I think just the, a, a particularly dynamic way to do it because the flavor expression is quite different between those. I wouldn't say quite different. It's 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 uh it's they're complementary of one another to have both of those dry hops in there. Uh, it, the the active firm dry hop tends to produce these sort of rounder, smoother, more like uh, luscious and, uh, you know, juicy hop flavors, whereas post-fermentation dry hop tends to produce bolder and zestier and sort of brighter hop flavors. Uh-huh. And pairing the two of those things together creates this just gorgeous depth in the beer. But, um, but yeah, to your point, another one of the experiments we ran was, it's kind of complicated to describe unless you can see it visually, but so I encourage everybody to download the booklet and you'll see what I'm talking about. But basically it's to test out what we what we thought and what what research suggests are sort of amplification synergies, we actually brewed five New England IPAs, one with the blend in its pre-blended format, and one or sorry four individual ones which basically had the four blend components fermented separately from one another. All of them at the same dosing rate, all of them dry hopped at active fermentation dry hop, and then the four that were that were fermented individually were the liquid was blended together in the correct in the in the same proportions as the blend, and carbonated, and we we then did sensory analysis on the two beers, and what we found was that there was a significantly higher incidence of stone fruit, berry, sweet aromatic, and floral on the uh, the beer that was sort of what we would say like co-fermented. The blend was fermented uh, in 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 Congress versus uh, versus the blend that was fermented separately, and it really meshes with a lot of research that's out there. Uh, particularly some of the research that's come out of the Sapporo lab that suggests that uh, particularly for the monoterpene alcohols and a few of the other compounds um, that when they're fermented in in, in combination and when they are uh, perceived in combination, so the human nose picks them up in combination, they have a tendency to be amplified. The human nose can actually pick pick them up at a lower threshold when they're together than it would uh, if they were separate. And so I feel like the blend really one of its one of one of the things that that experiment showed is that the blend uh, really harnesses the power of those things and kind of puts them to practical use, uh, which I think is exciting. That's ultimately what we're trying to do is is make the the whole greater than the sum of its parts, um, and that seemed to prove out in our our experiments internally. Well, there you go, and I, I can't wait to see the the blueberry blend because I know everybody. <laughs> I know everybody loves mosaic, but man, uh-huh. there's there's so much, or I should say, everybody loves the blueberry mosaic. There's so right. much of that mosaic out there that comes off diesel and PVC. So let's right. get that blueberry. It's hard. It's a different. I mean, that's the, one of the reasons that we're going down that path is uh, mosaic or any other variety is going to have a hard. T- any single variety, it's it's difficult to predict. You know how it's going to express that. That blueberry note, which ultimately we feel like is probably the product of a combination of esters. Mm-hmm. So that's been our that's been our research pathway for the the berry blend is, which is very much in a beta stage at this point. But so far, what we're trying to do is focus heavily on the soluble ester portion of the blend and and trying to hone in on what's going to contribute that berry note. Largely, I think we've been successful so far. I think there's some tweaking still to do, but. Um, but yeah, that's a, that's a frequent brewer question that we get. How do I get more blueberry? And same thing with mango. How do we get more mango? And both of those are, it's difficult. Some lots do and some lots don't. And so we're hoping that this, these, you know, these blends and this research can kind of bridge that gap a little bit. Awesome. Uh, be, uh, better beer through sides. 
That's the idea. Yeah, That's the idea. Yeah, you know, it, it's really exciting to uh, see what you've done, and the whole thing is just getting started, and then to extrapolate into what can be coming down the road. And and knowing Yakima Chief, uh, I, I'm really excited about it. Yeah. Well, thank you. I like I say, I'm a brewer at heart, so my heart is always going to be not necessarily in the research for its own sake. It's going to be like, okay, how do we immediately turn this into something like a brewer tool, either a product or a or a, a, a piece of advice like the survivables chart? Um, that's always going to be where my head is. At that just because ultimately I'm I'm a beer fan. I want to drink <laughs> I want to drink beers like what Joe is making at Fair State, uh-huh. uh, and uh, I want to see more and more brewers around the world producing stuff like that. So. There's a selfish element too, where it's just uh, it's it's been a super fun project, um, and I think, like you said, Denny, we're kind of at the tip of the iceberg. I hope, in a weird way, I hope we've outdated ourselves within the span of a couple of years, and we'll be looking back and saying, "Oh yeah, remember that? That was that was uh, that was really dated." And here we are, uh, you know, two years later with a lot more advice to be able to offer people. That's kind of the pace that it's been going at thus far. So. Awesome. It's hop startups. And, That's right. <laughs> and all I can say is uh, thank you to everybody out there who gets dewy-eyed over the idea of monoterpenes and thiols and all that sort of fun stuff, whereas I get excited over, ooh, I got strawberry. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's a time and place for that, too. Ultimately, like Joe said, the proof has to be in the pudding. If it if the, you know, the, the crack of the can doesn't deliver something pleasant, then, then they're, all the research is for nothing. So we want it to be... Uh, just a pleasant experience to drink, really. Yeah. All right, and uh, Joe, any last comments before we go? Uh, I'm I'm just really excited to see what the next uh, next year or two of this program at YCH comes out with, because a lot of these blends, I think, are going to, uh, you know, are going to u- utilize a lot of hops that uh, have so much potential and so much flavor impact that uh, it's going to be it's going to be a good thing for people who like hazy IPAs. There you go. And, and of course, uh, just to remind people, uh, Fair State, you guys are in, uh, you said, the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. And uh, how far out? Yep, did, yep. How, We've got a, a tap room in northeast Minneapolis and a production facility in St. Paul. There you go. And how far out can people find your beer? Oh, goodness. Uh, we send to 14, 15 states, uh, Texas, uh, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Iowa, uh, all, all over, all over the place <laughs> in the general Midwest area, mostly. All right, there we go. And then, Denny, any last comments or thoughts before we let these guys go on and have their day? You know, in, in terms of thoughts, I was just thinking back to the first time I saw cryo hops when they were like a, a top secret thing being made on a little handmade machine. Uh, we couldn't take any pictures of them. We couldn't really tell people anything about them. And to see it go from that to just, you know, escalate and, and, you know, evolve into what's going on with them now and the the research behind it, it's like everybody has said, man, it's really exciting to think about where it's going to go from here. All right. And then, of course, if you guys want to dig a little bit more deeply into this information than what we've produced here, you can go to cryopopblend.com. And we'll include the link in that in the show notes, but cryopopblend.com. And you've got the handbook that we're talking about, a poster that we're talking about, uh, some general background information, and also links to the to the Hop and Brew School webinar that Spencer gave that sort of kicked off this conversation. So, And in the meanwhile, it is available at the homebrewer level. I think you guys are, what, selling it in like two-ounce packages? 
Uh, because it's cryo, we tend to sell it in one ounce, so it should one be ounce. in one ounce. And uh, yeah, it is available in, in small pack, and and uh, we intend to ramp that up a little bit more next year. This in this in its first year, we never know how much to produce, and you don't know what the market's going to look like. And I think we have a much better handle on that now. So crop year 2021, I should see an increase in that for sure. There you go. And remember, I know hops used to be simple, but now hops are even more dynamic, and hopefully we'll get the science behind it to make it return to being simple again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, good luck on that, buddy. (laughs) How how much alpha acid do I have? Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, man, that just like totally blew my mind. Uh, (laughs) The research they're doing and how they're applying it is just stunning. And let me uh, say, too, that we will post a link to where you can get that uh, booklet that those guys were talking about, because it is just loaded with fascinating info and even recipes. Yeah, and I will also say, I wasn't kidding in the interview when I said that I cracked open the can of that cryopop, and even at arm's length, even through the tiny opening in the top of a 16-ounce can, that hop aroma came screaming out at me. Yeah, man, it, it's stunning. Yeah, so it's really, really impressive. I can't wait to see where they're going to go with future blend varieties because I know Spencer had talked about doing one with blueberry, which, of course, is funny since you mentioned blueberry earlier in the day. Yeah, really. Uh, and, you know, it's also one of everybody's favorite characters with, uh, say, Mosaic minus the diesel and the PVC. Um, so it'll be really interesting to see how how this further develops. And... Look, folks, we're bringing more science to the art of brewing. Yeah, uh, you know, it's really interesting, too, because a lot of people are doing science on hops, but nobody is really going in this direction other than these guys. Uh, And it's, you know, again, this is their first blend, their first shot at the whole thing. So I'm really curious to see where this research is heading now. Yeah, like we said, we'll include a link to the Cryopop website, which will also help you be able to get your hands on it. It's really interesting stuff. So. There we go. Now it's time to get some questions and get you out of here. That's right. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll be wrapping things up. So please stick around. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the work to cool enough to add Whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super-fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art. They're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Welcome back. It's time for some quick tips, something other, and some questions and answers. We'll see about the answers. Uh, I guess we're going to start off with uh, some Q&A, huh? Yep. And our very first question comes from, uh, was emailed to us at podcast.experimentalbrew.com. Lyndon Holmes uh, wrote in to say, "Uh, thinking of freezing quantities of yeast trube in ice cube trays and then vacuum sealing to grow on when needed. 
What do you guys think? How long would it keep? Any downsides to this? My thoughts are when repeatedly using the yeast cake from one brew to the next, the the characteristics seem to change over time. Growing from a batch of frozen would ensure it's only second generation. Danny. Yeah, no, ain't going to work. Um, you know, I got into a discussion about this uh, on uh, Facebook recently with a guy who said, sure, you can freeze yeast. I do it all the time at work. Well, he's got a minus 80C freezer. <laughs> yeah. 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 It, it, free, freezing, freezing cell cultures requires some special equipment. Yeah, right. Um, at the very least, you need to mix the yeast you're going to freeze with glycerin. And here's why. Uh, a, a normal consumer refrigerator goes through freeze and thaw cycles as it goes through defrosting and everything else. And even a refrigerator that isn't frost-free will do that. What happens is ice crystals form and they puncture the yeast cells, and you don't want that happening. So a a common way of dealing with that at the home or other than minus 80C freezer level is to mix the yeast with glycerin. Now, Lyndon, if you wanted to try that, then it might work, but you're going to have a real sanitation issue also, especially if you're freezing them. I mean, you know, maybe if you sanitize the ice cube trays, put some sort of sanitized cover over it or something uh, after mixing with glycerin, you know, that would be the only way that I would say you would even have a chance. Uh, simply freezing it in an ice cube tray and putting it in a vacuum bag ain't going to work for you, bud. Yeah, unfortunately, if you do just freeze in a regular old uh, consumer freezer, your yeast cells are going to have more stab wounds than Caesar did. <laughs> Et too yeasty. There you go. So, yeah, there are things that you can do. Denny mentioned the glycerin trick. Uh, there are other ways of preserving yeast. You can do slants and you can do plates. Freezing uh, freezing is just very difficult to pull off at the homebrew level. Um, and slants and plates tend to be more of a labor practice. Yeah, so, because you, ha- you have to re-slant or replate every few months. Yeah, so... If you really want to make sure that you're staying with just your your single colony or sorry your single generation type of idea, then the right thing to do is just go to plates and slants. But like we said, that's going to be more work. So there you go, Lyndon. Uh, oh, and then of course, don't forget, as with the answer, all things yeasties these days, you could also always just use a quike. <laughs> No, no thanks. That, I, I see, I see people going. Well, you know, or you can just use Quike, and it's like, what if you don't like the way it tastes? You know, <laughs> I'm not going to make beer I don't like just to get out of another situation that's difficult. Well, I know, but at the same time, if if your concern is mostly about trying to make sure that you have yeast on hand that's ready to go, I mean, other than say dried yeast, uh, Quike is uh, Quike is amazingly hardy. No matter what what you do to it in terms of drying it out, it seems to come back. Well, that it's because it tastes so terrible that drying it out can't hurt anything. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's uses for Quake. It's just not the universal panacea that everybody thought it was. All right. Exactly. So our next question comes from Brian Burtis. He actually wrote this back to us. Uh, he's from New Jersey, and we had actually talked to his homebrew club. And just after, well, Denny got called away, I think, for dinner. Uh, and so I kept answering questions for a while. But one of the questions that came up uh, was for Denny. And so we're going to put this to you, bud. And Brian writes in, he says, uh, during your virtual session with the Garden State Homebrew Club last night, I asked you a question about a Denny comment in the Homebrew All-Stars book that you didn't know the answer to. And you told me to email you and you would ask Denny. Ta-da, you email me and I'm asking Denny now. The comment is on page 88 where Denny is talking about roasted malts. 
all of them will reduce the pH of your mash, which can lead to astringency if not accounted for. As I said last night, I've seen countless sources say that a high mash pH can cause astringency, but this is the only time I've ever seen someone say that a low pH will too. Is this a misprint or is it correct? Uh, I, I don't know whether I misspoke or it was a misprint or whatever, but the bottom line is it's wrong. Um, dark malts will lower your pH and you'll need to raise it to compensate for them, uh, most likely. So, uh, that's, that's errata in that book. So just ignore it. Yeah. I'm wondering if you, if you meant that it would lead to not astringency, but an acidic taste. You know, uh, kind of, no, no, I think I was just wrong, and I did mean uh, um, uh, astringency from uh, a low pH, and that's not what it is. Well, there you go. Although you should actually still correct your mash pH just to avoid uh, too much of an acidic character anyway. But uh-huh. I also I also am going to tell you people, I am going to clip out that audio where Denny just said I am wrong, and I am going to <laughs> save that as an audio clip to be yeah, able to well, play. Hey. You know what, man? I'm wrong often enough that I have learned to admit it freely. Those are our questions for today. So you don't forget, you can always ask us questions at podcast at experimentalbrew.com or questions at experimentalbrew.com, or you can always text us or leave us a voicemail at 626-765-1AL. Now it's time for us to move on to getting you the hell out of here. And I'm going to start with a quick tip. And this actually plays in, I mentioned earlier, the vanilla extracts that, that I've been making. And for years, I've been using these little white screw-on lids with my mason jars because I do all my extracts in mason jars uh, because the metal ones will rust over time, even in the presence of just alcohol. They'll rust over time, and that's no good. And so I've been using Ball makes these little white jar lids that just screw on. They're plastic, right? Yay, whatever. Well, it turns out they're not leak-proof, which means they're not airtight. Which they're means not they're not leak-proof? Just, yeah, they're not leak-proof, not the, not the white ones. I've um, never had them leak. What, uh, what am I doing wrong? I don't know. Maybe you're just... <laughs> <laughs> it's clean living, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, somebody somebody tell us what clean living is so that we can both try it. Um, but So the white, the white lids are not actually watertight. They're not leak-proof. Um, and so I went out online and found on Amazon that Ball now also makes these gray lids that they do advertise as being leak-proof. And, you know, they're not that expensive, and now all my new extracts are going into those and, and holding up just fine. Uh, that way I can use my mason jars, I can see what i am uh, got there. They're sturdy storage vessels, and they're non-reactive, and now I'm not going to lose alcohol over time and flavoring. Uh, at the same time, also one of our sponsors on the other show, Brewing America, they make a couple of brand new mason jar lids as well that actually can do the same function, but they also have a pour spout built into them. So, like, for instance, if you wanted to be... Uh, newfangled and old-fashioned at the same time, you can use it as a, a mason jar, as a drink jar, and go and take your sports drink on the run. Just don't drop yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. They're really cool. Uh, the uh, official leak-proof ball lids, I just opened up a jar yet, or a box of them yesterday to use. Um, they're cool. Uh, I didn't have to go to Amazon. One of my local stores sells them. Uh, and the, uh, the Brewing America lids uh, just rock if you need a lid that uh, will open easily for you to pour from. Yeah, and they are, as with the other stuff that we've gotten from Brew in America, uh, built sturdily. Yeah, no kidding. Those guys make great stuff. All right, and so we'll include links for both of those in our show notes, and you can go and get them. Now, of course, it's time for something other 
because you know that we always like to leave you with something other. And this week, it's going to be a musical something or other. People will remember that in the last something or other, we mentioned on Hulu that you could watch Summer of Soul or The Revolution Will Not Be Televised, uh, which is a great documentary. And at the same time, Hulu's also launched a new series, Denny. It is called Paul McCartney 321, and it is stunning, especially if you're anywhere near my age and grew up listening to the Beatles. Uh, Paul McCartney and Rick Rubin in the studio going through the master tapes of lots and lots of Beatles and McCartney songs, uh, listening track by track, discussing how the parts were made, how the whole concept came about. It's totally fascinating. It's on Hulu uh, and one of the best music shows I've ever seen. Yeah, I love the parts where they're sitting there and they're talking not only about the history of the Beatles and Wings and all that, but as they're listening to the music, you know, pulling channels up and down so you can actually isolate different elements and actually hear what what they're talking about in the in the song. So it's actually really kind of uh, cool and fascinating, and it's also very apparent. That Rick Rubin, who, I mean, keep in mind, and Rick Rubin is a big-time music producer, has been for a long time. He's worked with lots of stars and celebrities. You can just tell from the look on his face as he's doing this that he is a kid in a candy store. Yeah, man, he's having, like, the time of his life, you know. And it's so much fun. I mean, I've, I've spent a major portion of my life in recording studios. Uh, and these guys are having so much fun pulling faders up and down and boosting parts and listen to it. Oh, listen, how did you come up with that baseline? I mean, it's just, it's a great, great show. Oh, well, I also like, uh, the, the little, the little funny thing that I think is only, only makes any sense if you ever spend time around a big recording board is watching them as they're getting ready to play a new, a new song, swapping out the tape on the channels or the paper on the channels. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. I know. The the first thing I said to Paula was, hey, look at all those board tapes there just hanging there. So for every song, you just put new and Man, I used to have those hanging all over my studio. So if you can't tell, both Denny and I are super excited about this series. I mean, even if you've heard like all the songs from the Beatles and all the songs from Wings and all the songs from just Paul McCartney on his own 150,000 times, which, I mean, you might have, then... Even then, I still recommend that you go and you watch this show because you learn new things. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, a lot of the stories and stuff I'd heard before, but man, watching these guys dissect the tracks is just, I mean, again, you know, I've spent a lot of time in the studio, so for me, this has a real special meaning, but even if you haven't, it's pretty darn cool. Yep. And you, again, that's Paul McCartney 321. You can find that on Hulu. And uh, again, highly recommended, as is the next thing, at least for me, I suspect Denny's not so much. Uh, you know, I, I I find it amusing, but that's about it. Well, I find it amusing, too. Uh, so you guys know I have an unabashed love for Yacht Rock, just like Marshall shot over there at Brewosophy. Uh And, you know, look, you know, the Bee Gees, the Bee Gees were a classic band that did more than disco, actually, even though everybody knows them for disco. They were around forever. Um but the D, uh, the Bee Gees, when they were at their height of their powers, could put together a hell of a tune, even if it wasn't something that was necessarily your jam. And the same thing could be said for the band The Foo Fighters. And also, we've talked about my love, Dave Grohl, who I think is one of the nicest human beings in the planet. And so it only seems fitting that Dave Grohl and The Foo Fighters formed up a different band other than The Foo Fighters. Hint, it's actually still The Foo Fighters. Uh, called the DGs, 
and they released a whole album of Bee Gees covers and Annie Gibb covers called Hail Satin. And it is literally the Foo Fighters doing Bee Gees songs. And it has like all that kind of classic Bee Gees sound and the pop setups for it, but with a more rock and roll edge to it. Yes, is it fluffy and inconsequential? Absolutely. So we're the Bee Gees in a lot of ways. But is it fun? Absolutely. So I would recommend for other listening pleasure after you're done watching Paul McCartney 321, go seek out the album Hail Satin by the DGs. <laughs> you got to love the name. I know. <laughs> all right. Let's get out of here. All right. Thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget that you can follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. I hang out on a bunch of different uh, discussion forums online, including the AHA forum. You can find Drew on the Homebrewing subreddit or the Slack Homebrew channel. If you want to ask us a question, suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. And if you want to get a hold of us each individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And, of course, you can always shoot us a voicemail, a text, uh, whatever, at 626-765-1AL. That's 626-765-1253. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. (laughs) 